Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Gemma and welcome to another episode of Good Influence, the last one of season two, if you can believe it. This is the podcast where each week you and I meet a guest who will help us pay attention to something we should know about, as well as answer some of your questions. This week, we're talking about failure, how our cultural conversations around failure have changed, the failures we relate to the most, and how perspectives on failure from older people can teach us lessons while we're young. So joining me this week is Elizabeth Day. Elizabeth is an author, journalist and broadcaster. If you're a big podcast fan, you probably don't need me to tell you that she hosts the hugely popular podcast How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, in which she examines life's supposed failures with her guests and reflects on how these failures affect and change us. Her latest novel, Magpie, is out on the 2nd of September and has been described as a tense, twisting story of jealousy, motherhood and power. I think it's really important that we know when we look up to someone and we might aspire to their levels of success, that they too have their really difficult moments. So I guess I'll start by asking you, so a lot of people will already be familiar with How to Fail, your podcast, because it's such such a huge platform. How did you actually sort of get into talking about failure in the first place? How did it come to be a thing that you were focusing on in making the podcast? It came about through failure in my own life is the really short version of the answer. But the slightly longer version is that I found my 30s a really intense decade of transition. And on the one hand, professionally, some things seemed from the outside to be going according to plan Mm. um, in that I was a Sunday newspaper feature writer. I'd published my first couple of novels inside and personally it didn't feel like that to me I was actually quite unhappy in my job and I was in a marriage that would implode in divorce (laughs) I tried and failed to have children I had unsuccessful rounds of IVF and then my marriage ended it took me about a year to get into dating after that and when I did start dating someone I made deliberately different decisions and I started dating someone who I thought represented like the person I'd become, like I'd got all this self-knowledge from all the stuff that I'd been through. And that relationship I had so much hope for, but it ended really briefly out of the blue three weeks before my 39th birthday. And I I was, yeah, exactly. It was (laughs) the worst breakup I've ever had. And I would include my divorce in that weirdly, because I think looking back, I potentially used that new relationship as emotional scaffolding to avoid looking at the wreckage of my marriage. So when that relationship ended, I was almost also processing the divorce. And it just feels like such a key time, particularly for a woman, 39, because you're looking down the barrel of your 40s. And for me, I'd always wanted to have children. And suddenly I was like, oh, I'm single again and alone. And that seems like vanishingly improbable now. And it was at at that moment that I think was like one of the lowest moments of my life that I kind of really reevaluated what I wanted from life, who I was and where I've been going wrong. And that made me start thinking about failure. And I realized that for every time that I had failed, I'd also survived. And I wanted to look into that more and just come to the end of a very long answer. (laughs) No, it's great. (laughs) My life as a Sunday newspaper journalist was incredibly privileged in many ways. And I got sent to interview a lot of celebrities, but the focus of those interviews were always their successes. It was always about the film they wanted to promote or the album they were proud of or the book they'd just written. And that's just the way of a lot of newspaper journalism in this country. And I was quite frustrated by the limitations of that. And I wanted to have an interview format where it felt more vulnerable and more authentic. And that's where the idea of how to fail came from. I mean, clearly it was a great idea because it took off like nothing else. And 
I mean, I think there must have been a lot of people who then felt the way you say you did in terms of being frustrated and that we only see the good things. I mean, you said that when you were in that job and it looked maybe great from the outside that you weren't necessarily that happy. Do you think that because nobody was talking about failures that maybe contributed to a lot of the like imposter syndrome that a lot of people seem to have because you don't realize that everybody isn't you know as happy as you might look on the outside definitely I think that's such a good point (laughs) and I think the rise of social media which you know I love it for many reasons one is that I met you put met in quotation marks because we haven't actually done that in real life (laughs) but there's so much amazing stuff happening on social media but one of the side effects is that you're constantly comparing your insides to everyone else's curated perfect outsides Mm -hmm. and you're the only one who knows what a neurotic mess you are (laughs) but then you're comparing that to like an image of Kim Kardashian looking amazing in Costa Rica so social media the rise of that happened at the same time as I was starting out in journalism so the two things were definitely enmeshed and I think you're right that that the conversation around failure has opened up I'm very honest to think I've been a small part of that but at the time You know, I would go through things in my personal life, like the fertility issues I've touched upon, and I wouldn't tell anyone at work about it. I didn't feel safe enough to do that. And I think that's still the case in a lot of workplaces. But I'm now a massive advocate of being able to bring your full self into any situation you deal with. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean crying at your desk, but it does mean potentially finding a confidant and being able to say, actually, this is what's happening. And this is the fullness of me. Like I'm this person at work and all this other stuff's going on. But for whatever reason, my life was very compartmentalized. And I think part of that was also that I was an inveterate people pleaser Mm. and I wanted to appear perfect in order so that I wouldn't let anyone down and so that people wouldn't leave me in romantic terms and so that I wouldn't let my employer down and I wouldn't get sacked. Like it's like, I think a lot of women particularly struggle with that. And it means that we're often the ones who do all the overtime. We're often the ones who don't ask for pay rises and we're often the ones who are exploited as a result of that. So all of that was happening for me. It makes me think as well, it's kind of, it sounds like breaking down almost that very British thing as well of kind of saying, how are you? Oh yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. How are you? Which there's um, Abby Clark, who's like a sketch comedian who I follow on Instagram. Does I love does a her. Whole, does, she's great, isn't she? <laughs> yeah. that, the one she does about the workplace, like, fine. How are you? Fine. How are you? Like that is so true of how we've talked to each other for so long. And I feel like when you start having more conversations, like you say, you should be able to take your not not everything not all your baggage necessarily but you should be able to you know have honest conversations whether that's at work or yeah with people in your life when you're I don't know I think definitely. it's turning failure from something that feels really embarrassing I feel like you've definitely been part of that conversation that's turned it into something a little bit less embarrassing and maybe we can all sort of be like look at me I'm a human <laughs> a little bit more. thank you for saying that yeah I totally agree I, th- I think the thing about failure one of the benefits is that it's incredibly democratizing it's going to happen to everyone whether you like it or not no matter how much illusory control you think you have over your life and the universe mm. you don't and failure will come in unexpected ways and so the fact that you can then be honest about something that everyone else would have experienced is a really amazing connecting force. And I'm a big believer, as I know you are, that actually when we're vulnerable, that's the source of solidarity between humans. That's like how we can understand and empathize with each other. But going back to that very British thing of pretending you're okay, (laughs) I interviewed Ruby Wax for my podcast and she said that instead of asking, how are you? She asks, how's the weather in your head today? And I oh, love I that. Like that. I know. <laughs> and because British people are obsessed with talking about the weather. So it's like, it's like a really is, good way of neutralizing. <laughs> <laughs> Get both of the conversations out of the way at the same yes. time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've never, to be fair, I feel like that makes sense. That's kind of how I think about it sometimes anyway. Like, oh, just I'm just feeling a bit grey today, which is quite often how we will cut, talk about British weather anyway. Yeah, I mean, we're doing, we're recording this on one of the hottest days of the year so far. So my we- internal weather is extremely sweaty right now. <laughs> yeah, internal, external, just sweaty, sweaty yeah. in general. <laughs> so with all the conversations that you 
have now had about failure and other people's failure do you find there are certain sort of categories of failure that people engage with the most in terms of when people are listening do you tend to get more messages and replies when it's things about like work or things about relationships like what are we really neurotic about that we like to hear other people talk about (laughs) I love that question and I've never been asked it before so um, that's so I love my favorite yeah me too when people say that to me I'm like yes (laughs) (laughs) um that's such a good question one of the things that I discovered very early on which has honestly been one of the biggest gifts of my life because it's made me feel less alone and more understood is that people really resonated whenever I or my guest spoke about fertility Mm. or about anything that has historically been deemed a woman's issue. And I put that in quotation marks. So recently I had the broadcaster Emma Barnett on and she spoke about endometriosis. had so Mm. many people get in touch Anytime I've ever spoken about or written about my own fertility journey, I've had an enormous amount of messages and like beautiful emails from people sharing their stories, women and men, actually. And I think it's because that's one of those things that's just been marginalized through history. And yeah. traditionally, we as women have been expected to kind of get on with things like behind closed doors and especially if you are a black woman, for instance, going through childbirth, the chances are that your issues will be overlooked. Black women are five times more likely to die in childbirth than white. Mm. Those sorts of things get an enormous response. Um, And then I think anytime anyone who seems to have it all sorted from the outside. So yeah, a a famous successful person. I'm often asked why I, why I get big names on the podcast and why I don't interview people who are like proper failures. (laughs) You'll never have heard of. (laughs) And my answer is twofold. One is I don't think that would be ethical. Um, I don't think they would necessarily want to do an interview about failure when they're in the thick of it. But Mm. secondly, because I think it's really important that we know when we look up to someone and we might aspire to their levels of success, that they too have their really difficult moments. So anytime a famous person has spoken about anxiety or mental health, that has had a huge impact. Um, so I think those are the key areas. And then the, 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 the single failure that comes up again and again and again, which is funny, is like a failed driving test. <laughs> Oh, I've got one of those. So have I. And then I just never drove ever. (laughs) Really? But you see, that's what's fascinating because a failed driving test is never just about the driving test. Yeah. It's about the anxiety you might feel when you're on the road, or it's about like um, your history of perfection and feeling like you had to ace everything first time. And it's super interesting as a portal into someone's psyche. So that's, that's a, failure that comes up repeatedly yeah well that would definitely be me as a big cliche then because yeah it was I did one driving test when I was I think I was 18 I didn't I didn't start driving straight away when I turned 17 because I was so anxious about it and I finally got to the stage of a driving test I, I messed it up because I was so nervous I, I but the worst part was I knew I'd failed it within the first two minutes and then had to do oh. the whole rest of the exam oh torture <laughs> but yeah I just I just didn't then do it it's still it's like the biggest practical roadblock in my life that anxiety throws up I just can't make myself learn to drive I do want to one day but I just I I haven't managed it so far so what happens like in pre-pandemic times when we were all allowed to go on holiday and you would go on like and you hire a car do you have to rely on someone else well obviously you have to rely on someone else to do that (laughs) yes yeah so I mean luckily for me my boyfriend drives which is great I mean I'm kind of like but I'm yeah I don't know I'm very aware and if we're going to drive somewhere I'll always kind of say do you want to drive or do you like do you not want to drive shall we get the train whatever because I know that by sort of bringing that plan up I'm instantly saying well you have to drive us (laughs) yeah yeah I don't know maybe maybe one day I'll pull my weight a little bit more in that respect but can I just say something really counterintuitive here because I'm also I'm not a natural driver by any means and I failed Mm. my test first time got it second time but I but I still feel really anxious I'm like who is trusting me behind a wheel especially when I've got passengers that's the thing that like puts my anxiety through the roof Mm. but I found driving in LA really helpful because the roads are straight 
the cars are automatic. You're quite often stuck in traffic, so you're not really moving. And you're listening to music and like driving down Sunset Boulevard and it feels like really good. I found driving in LA really helped me. I know that's counterintuitive, but just just one thing to think about. I was going to say, if I could think of somewhere that has like famously <laughs> bad roads and traffic, it's, it's probably LA. But you never know. Maybe, you maybe one day. Try it. <laughs> you, ne- you never know. <laughs> So, that, I mean, when we talk about something like failing driving tests, that's obviously not not as, de- well, I don't know, d- depends on what, what the issue is, but maybe not as deep a failure as um, you have mentioned, you know, fertility and how that really connects with people. That's obviously like a much deeper kind of more emotional sort of personal thing. Do you ever find it difficult kind of having that much emotion put out there and then Obviously, it's really nice that people then connect to the issues and then want to talk to you. But do you find it hard to get? Is it kind of a lot of emotion dumped on you sometimes? I don't say dumped in a horrible way, yeah. but I mean, you know, kind yeah. of you're not prepared for it being thrown at you. Another really like that's such an empathetic question. Um, no and yes. So, so basically, <laughs> when I'm having a conversation with anyone, Mm. one-on-one I really want to get to the real stuff Mm -hmm. the root of who they are and what makes them tick um that to me is not only interesting but but really important to understand another human being Mm. in their full selves so when I'm doing a how to fail interview I never feel emotionally drained or put upon I feel incredibly honored if someone is prepared to be vulnerable in that space and I think it's just one of the most beautiful things anyone can do so I'm so I'm so I'm so often moved but I don't feel drained by it yeah then when the episode goes out there it acquires a life of its own in the same way that the books I write acquire a life of their own so in How to Fail I wrote about my fertility journey that was one of the chapters in Magpie my new novel there's a lot of fertility stuff in there as well and I'm aware that then those things become part of someone else's experience and and dialogue Mm -hmm. and at that stage I do have to be quite careful about the the fence I put around my own emotional and mental health yeah because I do get a lot of really generous extraordinary messages from people sharing their stories and I don't I'm not able to reply to every single one of them individually which I find really crushing but I've also realized that if I attempt to do that it takes it occasionally will take me into quite a dark place personally And when I'm trying to stay positive about things like having a baby, I just, I'm very aware that I need to conserve my energy and put in some sort of self-care ground rules. But I do read and um, react and think of every single person who's ever sent me a message. And I do reply to a fair few of them. But I just want, if anyone's listening and has ever sent me something that's gone unanswered, it doesn't mean I'm not thinking of you. I I am sending you all the love in the world. (laughs) And and it's purely just that I, yes, I do find that that has an emotional cost. But the biggest emotional cost is when someone criticizes me, (laughs) which I don't know if you feel this as well. Like I've had to, you know, because what I do, I I believe in it and I want to put it out there. That's part of fulfillment for me is sort of sharing mm. with other people and getting their responses. And so I have to be okay with a level of criticism. But because I put so much of myself into things, it does sting every single time. Yeah. And and I've had to get better at processing that. And I've had to have like strong talks with myself and I've had to like make decisions not to respond and meet people and that's helpful for my mental health (laughs) yeah I mean I can definitely relate to that it's kind of I feel like it yeah it kind of depends on what the thing is like I'm I mean I'm just an extremely sensitive person like I'm I'm not that great at being criticized anyway but I mean who who does love being criticized I suppose but yeah it's always like 
oh, I don't know. I've never been super bothered by if I'll get messages or see things that people have tagged me in and thought they don't like what I'm wearing or even if they've got like things to say about me physically. I'm kind of like, well, do you know what? I can't do anything about that. So fine be mean if you if you want to but that's not my fault but yeah when it's kind of something quite personal and you know that you're trying to do something not to not to sound like an asshole but trying to do something you know to like put some good into the universe kind of thing like try and do something that will be helpful to people and then yeah when those things kind of when you put a bit of your heart into something and then people start criticizing it that's definitely harder first of all you're like an astonishingly beautiful woman so (laughs) anyone who has ever criticized you for how you look is like totally outrageous I'm physically like moving around in discomfort (laughs) (laughs) just sorry to make you squirm but secondly um and you're beautiful inside and out but secondly I think that the way that I have chosen to deal with it it's like I, I feel like criticism has been made visible through the internet through, th- through social media before we could exist in quite happy little bubbles <laughs> and there was a there was a certain privilege to that as well that you, you didn't have to engage with the things that you didn't want to hear and when I started out in journalism way back in 1832 there, there was like <laughs> there was hardly any internet there was like one computer that people could use to join whatever the search engine was at the time um yahoo um but also people had to write a physical letter to criticize something that had appeared in the paper whereas now people can comment online and that's wonderful in that it's democratizing and it also means you just let in all of the other stuff that was probably it probably existed before but was invisible and yeah. so i've just got a lot smarter about choosing whose opinion i'm going to listen to i have four or five like cornerstone relationships in my life I know that they have my back and want the best for me. And I know that when they offer constructive criticism, it is in my best interests. Mm. And then I sort of ask myself how I've, if, if someone was to criticize me online. So there's one example during the last lockdown, I feel like we've had about 5,000, but during the last one where you were allowed to go for a walk every day with one other person, not from your household. And I went for one of those walks, actually, the la- it was the tail end of that lockdown. And it was a really lovely, joy-giving walk with a friend I hadn't seen for ages. We stayed socially distanced throughout. And it was really good for both of our mental health. And someone commented online being like, I can't believe you're being so irresponsible and posting about like, meeting up with a friend. And that really like, undid me because I was like, oh, I don't, and this person was a doctor and I was like, oh my God, I hope they, this doesn't make me like anti-NHS. <laughs> oh I was like, I, feel, I felt so awful. And then I had to just take a breath and be like, no, hang on a second. Do I think I've done anything wrong? No, I know I haven't. And I have to be okay with that. So it's also yeah. about like trusting your internal voice, which historically I haven't been that great at. Yeah. Do you think we could kind of apply the same thing of like how we talk about criticism to failures, like which of our failures sort of sting the most? Because I always wonder, I have to say, when I listen to episodes, because people share so much really personal stuff, but I don't know, maybe I'm just super nosy or I don't know, something else. But I always wonder like what, if there are any sort of additional failures that people just aren't willing to talk about, the ones that are kind of the like more buried ones or the ones that are just too yeah raw I don't know why I'm always like look, looking for more because people, yes. people obviously share I, so much but no I think you're right I think there probably is for many guests this like unexplored hinterland of a whole pile of stuff that mm. they don't want to make public or they're not ready to make public and I think that in a way that adds to the interest of the interview, hopefully, if I'm doing Mm. my job properly, because I feel an episode of How to Fail is a success, ironically, when, um, (laughs) when I've been able to ask about the three failures, but touch upon things that haven't been stated. So quite often, even if someone doesn't want to reveal a certain thing that's happened, there will be a revealing moment of shared emotion or feeling that might give a hint of that. And I feel that I've done my job well when someone says at the end, 
that was like a therapy session or yeah. I felt so safe. Like creating a safe space for my guests is really important for me. And I think that's why it works to have them choose the three failures that they're willing to discuss in advance yeah. of the interview. It not only helps me structure the episode, but I like to think that it helps make them feel a bit safe. <laughs> um, yeah. And I always say, like, if there's anything that you say that you want taken out or do feel free, hardly anyone ever asks for that. But mm. it's really important for me that there's there's a degree of kind of uh, respect and consideration for what they're about to share. Yeah, I'm exactly the same actually recording this podcast. Like, I kind of say to people you know if somebody sort of stumbles over their words or sort of goes oh I messed that up and it's kind of it's like it's fine it's fine we'll we'll start the sentence again kind of thing like it it doesn't matter but I think yeah it's like it's kind of we're getting into sharing failures now but there is weirdly through that even more of an expectation to be really perfect online and nobody's allowed to make mistakes anymore well, also, no one's allowed to say that they feel bad about failing now. <laughs> like, that's, yeah. that's an unanticipated <laughs> consequence of the popularity of how to fail is that now I think some people feel under pressure to fail really well straight away. And I always like to say there's just no way you can fail at failing. Failure is going to happen to all of us. Failure does not define you. How you respond to it feeds into the character that you are. And how you respond to it is to a greater or lesser degree within your control. But that's not to say that you need to be able to process every single failure immediately. Some Mm. failures are utterly cataclysmic and will require a period of mourning, of grieving, of coming to terms with. And you might never be at peace with it. And it might shape you in all of these ways you couldn't ever have intended, but it doesn't make you yourself a failure. And it's okay to take that time to understand what something might be trying to teach you. And it's also okay to say, I don't think that was teaching me anything, quite frankly, but I survived it. So I guess one of the things it might have taught me is that I'm stronger than I thought. Mm -hmm. And I also think that it's really important to distinguish between types of failure and the kinds of people who are allowed to fail. So I'm aware that I'm extremely lucky and privileged talking to you through a laptop as a white, privileged, educated woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm given multiple opportunities to fail in the, in a way that a marginalized person, a person of color, someone living with a chronic illness wouldn't be given as many opportunities. So there's more pressure on them to be perfect the first time which is wrong and needs to change. Mm. But the second thing is, is that there are, for me, two different groups of failure. One is your common or garden failure, like failing your driving test, which we chatted about. (laughs) The other is a huge life-shifting failure, which can be entirely beyond your control, like a global pandemic, like terrible illness, like the death of a loved one. And I'm not for a minute suggesting that both categories of failure can be as easily assimilated. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. It's just that the way that I choose to live my life is that most things that have happened to me have taught me something in the fullness of time. And that's my way of attaching meaning to something that might otherwise be meaningless. So although we, none of us wanted to have lived through a global pandemic, although it's been Mm -hmm utterly horrendous and caused untold grief for millions of people around the world who've lost loved ones. Alongside that, one of the things that we could take from it is it's helped us reassess our friendships. It's made us understand profoundly the value of togetherness. Um, It's potentially ushered in a new era of flexible working. That's one example for me of how I try not to be really depressed about depressing things that happen so that's what I mean by it makes me I wanted to ask you actually so as we're kind of talking about you know looking at the positives of failure and even kind of just of this whole concept and kind of looking at failure as something that isn't necessarily terrible I wanted to ask how you feel about the concept of kind of failing upwards and who because I know and as as you mentioned you know there's there's certain people who are kind of allowed to fail upwards and are allowed to kind of 
benefit from their failures and then certain people who aren't given the opportunity to maybe do that is that something you've thought much about in terms of because you know as we go through and go through your how to fail episodes and it's obviously like you say you talk to a lot of successful people who then have failed yeah is that kind of as a concept something that you think much about it definitely is especially given the state of politics in our country (laughs) I mean talk about failing upwards (laughs) Uh (laughs) Um, and the privilege of a sort of old Etonian education uh yes I do think about it a lot partly because the podcast has been a learning experience for me too. It's really, Mm. really been incredibly valuable for me in terms of working out how I think about life and this whole philosophy around failure. And I've definitely evolved my opinions on it. Um, And I think I, some, one of the criticisms that I sometimes get is we touched upon it earlier about the idea of getting people who seem like astonishing successes and are by any metric, like Kazuo Ishiguro won a Nobel Prize. Okay. So like that's, Andrew that's Scott, pretty successful. Like, yes, that's pretty <laughs> successful. Um, Andrew Scott and Phoebe Waller-Bridge, obviously like household names, like what, and one of the criticisms is, well, what on earth would they know about failure? Hmm because they're such astonishing successes, I can't possibly relate to that. And are you telling me that, oh, if I just learn how to cope with the fact that I failed this exam, I too can be a global superstar? And I'm not trying to do that at all. And I think we live in an age where we seek to flatten everything to make it really black and white. It's super interesting to me that, just to go off on a tangent, we live in a world... Okay, great. (laughs) Love this. Um, (laughs) We live in a world that's increasingly non-binary in terms of gender and identity. And that's a wonderful thing. But at the same time as that's happening, I feel like we're more and more binary in terms of our opinions. That Yeah. And I feel like sure. we're not allowed to explore how we feel about something without running the risk mm-hmm. of being shut down or cancelled or being told that I'm like morally wrong. Um, yeah. and, and I think that because the world is chaotic and difficult, a lot of people seek to simplify issues and flatten them and make them one thing or the other and my podcast is a podcast of nuance and so Mm. I always think that if you listen to an episode and someone seems to be really successful actually you'll discover that they don't always feel like that and it hasn't always been that case and Andrew Scott chose as one of his failures, his failure to be heteronormative. I mean, what an extraordinary thing to share with the world. Yeah. And like how that had affected him in his 20s. And like it was just really, really interesting. So I don't know if that's answered your question really, but I am, I don't like the idea that fail, like failing well has become a kind of hashtag has become a sort of good vibes only we can only think positively here because I'm I'm so like anti all of that like I think it's okay not to feel okay it's okay to fail and actually like the direct opposite of the positive psychology good vibes only movement so basically what I'm saying is it's nuanced (laughs) (laughs) we love nuance here (laughs) keep nuance alive (laughs) Yes, yes. Oh my gosh. That'll be my new podcast, How to Nuance. <laughs> I would definitely listen or to Or Good Influ Nuance could be your new series. <laughs> oh my God, let's just do, <laughs> we'll work on our puns. Yes. <laughs> and do some kind of crossover episode. <laughs> I love a pun. <laughs> um, so I feel like last thing that I wanted to ask you, um, I'm interested to know, so you've had a lot of different people on your podcast and we've kind of already touched on it, you know, how certain things you might think of as failures and then sort of the luxury of time passing and being able to look back on things makes me wonder whether you feel there's a difference between the failures that your guests or we in general look at, depending on how old we are. Ooh, so for example, such a good point. Yeah. do you find that older guests or people you've had on come up with very different ideas than people in their 20s for example because I'm really interested to know then because a lot of people listening to this you know might be kind of in that 20s bracket like what does that teach us then about dealing with failure at that age another amazing question that I haven't been asked before and you're totally right 
generally my favorite guests are 70 or above. I mean, over 80 is a dream because, because you accumulate so much wisdom mm. through living life. I mean, that's the only way you can understand life is to live more of it. Mm. <laughs> and, and also because then your sense of perspective shifts. So you're right. People, you know, I recently had Gloria Steinem on the podcast, who is one of my all-time heroes. It was a dream come true getting her. Um, she's 80-something, I think. I think she might be 86. Maybe I've got that wrong. Anyway, she looks amazing. Um, you can't tell. <laughs> you can't tell. Her failures were to do with the death of loved ones, of her parents, and the fact that she'd failed to be there in for her, the meaningful way that she wanted to be. Mm. That's something that hopefully not too many people in their 20s would have experienced. And it really does just shift the tone of the entire interview. Because yeah. you're like, oh, we're talking about really deep-rooted things, about the things that you care about as your life is closer to its end than it was to the beginning. So there yeah. definitely is... A, a real difference. And I also think that, you know, generally speaking, of course, this won't be true of everyone, people in their 70s, 80s, I don't think I've had someone in their 90s yet, but we can but dream. Um, they give fewer fucks. <laughs> like they're, they're, they're much more likely to be honest mm. about what they've learned. And then, you know, I had some, I had Annie Nightingale, the legendary Radio 1 DJ, so often they're incredibly young spirited at heart and she spoke hilariously about not having a pension <laughs> I, was like, I mean that's something that is highly relatable for someone in their 20s but she had the sense of perspective which is like but I'm that's okay with me because I love my work and I always want to work and I, I suppose that's a real gift to give younger generations and I benefit from it hugely as well because one of the things that I've realized during the podcast is that so many people feel that they failed at their 20s it's a decade of such intense pressure from all aspects and it's also for many of us the first decade out of full-time education and there's no exam you can sit to show that you're being a good adult um yes and and I think the other thing is is that we fetishize youth so much that people labor under the misapprehension that if they aren't succeeded in their twenties, then they're never going to make it. And actually my experience belies that. I feel like I've become more myself with more opportunities and more quote unquote success, the older I've got. And so I'm very much about dismantling that myth that age is weakening because it's totally opposite from my perspective. And that's something that older interviewees always bring to the table love that answer thank you <laughs> I was I was really keen to know what you thought about that one yeah it's such a good it's such a rich topic I mean I've interviewed someone for the new season who's she's in her late 70s and she was just brilliant oh. <laughs> and like oh, I you know wait. she'd gone through sorry just to give you a little teaser yeah she'd gone through unimaginable personal tragedy through the pandemic and she was constantly at pains to say, but it's nothing given what so many other people are going through. And I think that sense of perspective, that sense of like understanding your place in a wider world is just something that you get with age as well. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Every week, my guest and I will be answering your questions, and the first one comes in from Kristen, who asks, I'm a perfectionist, and failure is very scary for me. I have a hard time accepting failure and feel so jealous of my friends who are able to just go with the flow. Do you have a mantra or a phrase that you repeat to yourself when you're in a negative headspace or have just made a mistake? Wow, what what a question. Um, Kristen, that is such a deep question and goes to the very core of my being because I completely understand where you're coming from. I am also a recovering perfectionist in that... I think I fell into a cycle at school, and perhaps you relate to this, of feeling that if I did well at tests and exams, then I would be loved and approved of. And the older I get, the more I realize that that isn't necessarily the case, that in our rush to be perfect, we sometimes forget to be real. And it means that often we're denying the people closest to us the opportunity to get to know us as we truly authentically are. And that led me into all sorts of relationships that weren't good for me and where I constantly felt like I had to be performing and I was slightly treading on eggshells all the time because I didn't want to let anyone down. And now I suppose the mantra that I would return to is that it's so much better to be real than to be perfect Because when you're perfect, you just don't allow anyone in. And it's quite boring because it's the same as anyone else who's perfect. It's so much more interesting to be flawed, to be imperfect, to be someone who connects with others through their failures. And so that's something that I I always seek to remind myself. And I would also say those friends of yours who are able to be in the flow, I mean, who even are they? (laughs) Do they belong to an alien race? Because uh, I, I think they potentially, some of them might not always feel like they are able to go with the flow, but maybe they don't feel they can admit that to you because you seem to have it all sorted because you are projecting this image of perfection. And that's not a bad thing at all, but I think you might be surprised at how much you can share with each other. And then the other thing that I would just say on a very practical level, and I don't want to be one of those really irritating people who's like, exercise, it's good for your mental health. (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) But as someone who spends a lot of time in her head, I find it unbelievably important to do some form of physical movement. And for me, the thing that's enabled me to come to terms most with my imperfections is probably yoga, because the entire premise of yoga is that you can't possibly be perfect and you've got to listen to your own body. And Mm. there's something about knowing that I'm going into a yoga class and no one's expecting me to be perfect. In fact, you're doing it wrong if you're doing it perfectly. (laughs) That's been a real release for me. And it's really helped me be in my body in those moments. And so I found that very helpful as well. I like that. It's a good mix of, you know, what to think and then some practical stuff too which I yes think is there helpful. you go <laughs> and it doesn't have to be yoga you can literally just be like dancing around your bathroom to Dua Lipa's physical and that's another great thing <laughs> <laughs> so we've got options that's the important exactly <laughs> <laughs> okay next question is from Charlie who asks how do you find and feel being public about trauma and knowing that it's the first time your friends might hear it Do you feel it can make them more flippant or passive about it? And how do you alleviate that? Thank you for that considered question, Charlie. I, okay, I've I've got multiple layers to answer with. One is that none of my friends have been been flippant um, or, or passive or taken it for, taken my openness for granted, partly because I'd been open with them already about the things I then choose to share publicly. Also because if a friend ever has been either of those things, they are not my friend. Mm -hmm. Like that's not an appropriate response. How you live your life is entirely up to you. And if you are someone who chooses to share, that deserves its own space and its own respect and I think again going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning Gemma about like that British reserve we live in a culture where we're so often expected to be seemly we're expected to kind of hide our trauma our imperfections our rage so that we can be neat 
and pliant and these little packages that are just easy to accept. And I'm a huge advocate of being messy (laughs) in public because that's where I felt the truest sense of me. And that's where I've also found to my great joy most acceptance after all of those years busily trying to be perfect actually when I admitted all of my flaws that's when I found that I engaged with a much broader platform of people and my friendships got much deeper as a result so that's certainly been my experience having said that there are certain things that I haven't shared publicly and I'm not ready to share publicly and I might not ever share publicly it's mainly because they involve other people. And I'm aware that I don't want to tell their stories for them. But I think that that's a really important thing to keep in your mind that just because you choose to share one thing, you don't have to share everything. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's really useful just to ring fence certain things and, and for yourself and for your own safety and your own mental health. So I'm a big believer in knowing instinctively when you're ready to share something. And sometimes that takes a bit of time. So I don't tend to share trauma as it's happening. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very common as well. I mean, in conversations that I've had about mental health, I find that most people approach it quite similarly to me in that it's it's much harder to talk about when you're really kind of in the pits of it. Whereas with a bit of distance between you and the situation a lot of people find it a lot easier but then yeah it's one of those things that everyone deals with differently I suppose like I spoke to um Callie Thorpe on a recent podcast episode and she's very good at when she's actually feeling depressed or is kind of in that kind of headspace she's very good at Mm. getting on her Instagram stories and being very open about it and sort of saying these are the things that I do to make myself feel better in this time while she's in the middle of it. And I think coming back to, you know, we love all the nuance. It's so good to see how different people deal with things too. Definitely. And I think that that's amazing. And I really admire people who do that. I think for me, because I have such an instinctive need to share and to communicate, like connection is at the heart of everything I do and am. It's what makes me tick as a person. Mm. And sometimes, for instance, at the beginning of the, well, halfway through the first lockdown, I had a miscarriage. And when I was going through it, I really, I had this like compulsion to share. But I knew that for me personally, I, I couldn't do that right then because I needed to have that experience just for me and for us for me and my partner and for the baby I was using like I knew there was an overriding instinct that needed that even though quite often I'm like I need to connect and I need to share and this will this is what will give it meaning and the lesson that I've learned about myself which absolutely doesn't apply to everyone is that I just need to take a breath (laughs) just need to leave it like a couple of weeks and then see how I feel and for me the thing that comes out after I've left that gap, I feel is always more worthwhile. And and that's how I, oh my gosh, I'm about to sound so pretentious. That's how I create art, Gemma. (laughs) Wow, I love the art you put out. So thank you for doing it, however you do it. (laughs) But that's how I write novels as well. Like I, I need to be writing about the thing that's going on in my life, but I need to have had time to sort of process it personally in order to put it on the page. Yeah, that makes sense. That definitely makes sense. Next question is from Sophia, who asks, I have always thought that preparing myself for failure by expecting failure would make it easier to handle. For example, thinking you might not pass an exam before taking it. Is that a helpful way or does it just make me less self-confident? Oh, Sophia, I think it's brilliant. I think it's a brilliant way of looking at it. I'm a massive advocate of the power of constructive pessimism. So again, when I said earlier, like positive psychology has been great in many ways, but it also, the knock-on effect for some people has been to squeeze out any space for negativity. And actually Mm -hmm. that's for me, isn't a functional way to be because I'll feel negative in any given day about any given number of things. And that's okay because life is texture and it's nuance and it's all the emotions at once. Like feeling is the most important thing. Um, But that means that I 
am also, you know, I'm optimistic and I'm pessimistic. And Alain de Botton came on my podcast. He's one of my few repeat guests. And he talked about the power of constructive pessimism because he said, anytime you're facing the prospect of failure, let's use the example of like applying for a job. If you ask yourself, what's the worst that can happen? The worst possible thing is that you don't get the job. You don't earn enough money. You get evicted from your home. You end up on the streets. That's an extreme, that's an extreme version of events. Would you be able to cope? And you wouldn't want to cope, but most people I believe have it within them to cope with that situation. So if you say that to yourself and then you think of the opposite, like what's the most optimistic version of events? The most optimistic version is that you get the job and within a week you're the CEO of the entire company and a multimillionaire. (laughs) Both of those versions of events are extreme. So both of them are extremely unlikely to happen. The most likely thing is at the center of those. The most likely thing is the average, is the aggregate. And I definitely find that a very helpful way of thinking. Could I cope with the worst? Yes, I probably could. Therefore, I'm going to take the risk because the biggest failure for me is not taking the risk in the first place because that means that you'll never grow and you'll never evolve and you'll never progress because you can't always win. Sometimes you have to learn, but you can use all of that as a sort of data acquisition. So I think anything is fuel sphere. And if that's what works for you, then that works for you and don't question it too much. I found that a really interesting answer because as you were talking, so, and the first episode that Alain de Botton did on your podcast is my favorite episode. I've listened to it is so it? many times. Yeah, Aww. love that episode. Um, but as you were talking, I was kind of nodding along and you were saying, you know, it might be good, but also, you know, think of the worst thing. It might, And I'm like, yeah, yeah, nodding along because I think of the worst things all the time. But then you went on, to thinking about the best thing and how it might actually be better than you're even expecting. And my head never goes to that place. Yes. Isn't that interesting? Because you're right that that a lot of people struggle to think about the best version of events. But if a world exists in which the worst version of events can happen, then Mm. by its nature, the best version can also happen too. So you need to be able to think both. You need to be able to think, I could be the best person. If I'm, if I'm investing in thinking I'm going to be the worst person at this, then I also have to believe I could be the best person because otherwise it doesn't make logical sense. Yeah, I love that so much. I feel like the scale in my head and probably for a lot of people, you go from this, you know, this good, pretty, okay thing could happen or this terrible, terrible thing could happen. We need to push the scale out the other way. This this amazing thing could happen. It probably won't, but it could. Yes. And then it's really liberating because you're like, oh, there's so much more space to experiment. Definitely. Love that. If you want to know about opportunities to send in questions for upcoming guests and be the first to learn when season three comes out, then follow us on Instagram or Twitter at GoodInfluenceGS and email me at GoodInfluencePod at gmail.com. Before you go, I've got three things that I ask every guest and that's if listeners want to find out more about what we've been talking about today. Could you please recommend us something to read, something to listen to and something to watch? The thing to listen to I'll start with first. So... When I came up with the idea of how to fail and then thinking about doing a podcast, I was listening to a lot of podcasts at that time. And one of the best podcasts I've ever listened to is Where Should We Begin with Esther Perel. Esther Perel is a relationship counsellor and she invites people going through tricky times in their relationship to talk about their issues. And you're basically allowed to eavesdrop on the therapeutic process. And it's fascinating because what you realise is whatever you're going through and however toxic any relationship you've ever been in has been, you are not alone and that it's part of the condition of being human. And she's just so good at making you feel you can cope and also helping you understand where your behaviors come from. So Mm. I love that podcast. The other one that I really want to put into the mix is Glennon Doyle's podcast, We Can Do Hard Things. I really like the format of that. She chats to her sister and then her wife occasionally makes an appearance and they have a topic each week and one of the ones that really blew my mind was they were talking about fun what it is and how you have it so I've just never because I feel like I fail to have fun enough fun a lot of the time so that was a really interesting 
Oh, yeah, it was honestly, it's so interesting to listen to you because I feel like Glennon is very like you and me in that respect, in that she's like, fun? Like, what? <laughs> what? Am I meant to have a hobby? Like, I don't feel I have any hobbies other than I love going Same. to the cinema. Yeah. <laughs> it's because I think we're introverts who've learned how to like operate. It's always been like a, quite a stressful question, like in, oh, I don't know, back in the day for like, job interviews or like university applications and stuff and it's always like oh put in some more about you like what are your hobbies and I'm like what is everyone else doing that I'm just not like connecting to a thing and doing it all the time and trying to like force myself into hobbies and I I don't my hobby is watching telly quite honestly (laughs) Dito (laughs) on my CV like when I was whatever 18 or whatever (laughs) my hobbies because you're always told at school you need to put hobbies to show that you're a well-rounded person my hobbies were like um, tango dancing. I went to one lesson, hated it. <laughs> and abseiling, I put in there because I I abseiled a bit, like a couple of times when I was about eight or something, <laughs> like, on a PGL adventure holiday. I was like, that'll oh do. Shove that, that brings, in. That takes me back. <laughs> I know. Uh, anyway, so that's that's the thing to listen to. Um, to read, other than my new novel, Magpie, available to order from all good bookshops. <laughs> do it, plug it. <laughs> I'm so terrible at plugging normally that I like, I just have to remember and I just crowbar it in. I would have made you and done it for you if you hadn't mentioned it. You're so, thank you. That's so <laughs> sweet of you. I always forget, especially with a conversation as amazing as this, I'm just like, get really involved. Um, I thought a lot about this question because I love books so much and they mean a lot to me and they're incredibly important in my life. And the book I would suggest reading is Educated by Tara Westover which is a memoir of a woman who grew up in a in survivalist America. Her family believed that the end of days were coming. They didn't believe in mainstream medicine or schooling. She was homeschooled. She went, various members of the family went through horrific accidents and they never went to hospital. And she ended up studying at Cambridge and becoming a Cambridge academic. Then she wrote this phenomenal memoir which is not only about the power of education but also about the power of educating yourself and it's about the power of kind of finding yourself in a world in a microcosm that is set up to make you believe that you're a failure or you're the odd one out or you're somehow somehow not meeting this impossible standard how to find your own voice and it is so extraordinarily written she's an amazing writer apart from anything else and it's one of my favorite memoirs I think I've ever read she also did a how to fail episode because I literally like emailed her publicist being like anything I can do to meet her (laughs) I'm really glad that you've reminded me about that book because I borrowed it ages ago from my friend Rachel and it sat on my shelf and I'd completely forgotten about it and you've just renewed it that's going to be I'm going to put that top of my list next now you're going to absolutely love it. She ends up estranged from her family as well. And that's also like a very profound thing to read about how Mm. someone then makes their own version of family if they don't have the one that they were raised in. So that's an amazing book. And then the thing to watch, (laughs) I was initially going to say The Real Housewives of New York, which I believe is the greatest show on television (laughs) and also does teach you a lot about failure and owning your mistakes. Mm -hmm. But I think I'm actually going to go for the Netflix documentary series, The Last Dance, which is all about the Chicago Bulls basketball team at a time when they had Michael Jordan and Dennis Rodman and all of those greats and a Scotty Pippen. And Michael Jordan is someone who talks a lot about the value of failure in Mm. being a superstar athlete. He talks about how, you know, he misses a shot 99 times out of 100, but he does that to train for the 100th time and to be able to make that shot. And it's an incredible documentary. I loved the way it was structured. It's got these amazing interviews with all the key players. And it teaches you a lot, or it did me, about success and failure and what that really means. So those are my recommendations. I like that one too, because that is, I'd seen that advertised and I would never have expected that I would really enjoy it that much because I'm not a sports person. Me neither. Go sports, sports ball. <laughs> but, but that's <laughs> Who's the good. man in the black and what's, yes, the, is this offside or? <laughs> what colour is that too. team yeah. playing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
but no, that's, that sounds really good. I'm glad, glad. Thank you for that recommendation too. It's about so much more than just sport. Yes. And it's also like got a really amazing 90s vibe to it. The music, the Nike trainers. It's just, it's great. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Elizabeth, for joining me. If you enjoyed the episode, I'd love you to subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you're using. And if you've got an extra minute, you can leave a rating and a review as well. Your reviews make a big difference and help other people find the podcast. I won't say my usual see you next week because it's the end of season two. Seasons one and two are available to catch up on and I will be back with you soon. 